everyone, and welcome to episode 56 of the App Advice Weekly Podcast. This is your host, Trevor Sheridan of AppAdvice.com, and joining me as usual is my co-host, Brett Nolan of AppAddict.net. Join us this week as we roll through an App Store odyssey and disassemble the goods in search of lightning strikes. How are you doing today, Brett? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, it was an interesting week of new releases and uh, some good stuff, some mediocre stuff, but plenty of stuff to play. Always plenty of stuff to play. And before we get to the games, we're kind of in that period where there's not the most Apple news going on, probably not until we're actually into March. So that means we can focus more times on apps. And there's an interesting app this week called Thunderly, which I'm not exactly sure what the point is, but it does give you a 3D <laughs> photo photorealistic globe that you can zoom and pan around to find lightning strikes. And when you do your phone will make the lightning or the thunder sound and then the flash on your device will go off and your device will vibrate like lightning is actually striking your phone. And that's what it does. <laughs> <laughs> well, the weird part is the app, by default, all those settings are turned off. So you're when you first load this up, you get this nicely rendered 3D view of the globe and you can scroll around and it just really doesn't seem like much. And then you see a couple of blue and purple dots all over the place and there's not much to really see you have to go into the settings and then turn on all this and then your phone starts going nuts when you go over these areas where the lightning strikes have been in the previous hour and it kind of does a decent job of kind of simulating lightning i like you i don't really understand the point i guess if you really love lightning this kind of gives you lightning in your house but I don't know. It does a good job of pretending to be lightning, but I don't really see the point of it either, but I guess it's a fun little time waster. Yeah, so just it kind of offers that real-time photorealistic map where you can see the clouds across the entire globe to kind of see what the weather is like all around the world, and then it ties that lightning strikes into it, and I think the icing on the cake is just the lightning aspect of where it flashes you because there's other 3d globe apps that offer real-time weather and show you how the sun currently is progressed across you know where what part of the world is dark what part's still in sunlight so you can see that all and then the lightning just kind of offers the icing on the cake though this isn't to be confused with an app where it's going to have like a background kind of relaxing sound where there's rain and then lightning ever so often there's also lightning simulator apps where you can just press start the storm and de designate how long you want it to be and how much lightning there is and it does the same kind of thing where you put your device in a dark room and then the screen's going to flash so this one uses the flash on the back of the device so i guess this is a surprisingly competitive space in the app store <laughs> yeah i the thing i just don't get is why they don't have it turned on in the settings by default the whole point you're coming into this app is to do this simulate lightning like if i just want to go look at colored dots on on a map that's not really compelling the whole point of the app is give me that lightning feeling and so i don't know i think they should have everything on by default but it is kind of neat and I, I, I have not tried turning it on in like a super dark room and seeing how much it lights the room up. But it is pretty impressive, uh, the amount of light, just because that flash on the back can get pretty bright that comes out of it just with the simulated lightning strikes. Yeah, turn the volume all the way up. 
turn all the lights off and make sure your device is facing up. But see, you have to spin the globe, so it's tough <laughs> that you need to spin the globe to find the lightning, and then that back of it is going to go off. Right. Well, I guess you could pre-go up to an area where there is a bunch of lightning and then just leave it there, and then maybe you'll get lucky and lightning will strike. I, I know that it's kind of cliche, but <laughs> that's what you're hoping for. <laughs> Yep, and so that's Thunderly. It's free, it's universal, and that means it's time for some games. And the big highlight this week is Alto's Odyssey, the follow-up to Alto's Adventure, which really took the App Store by storm. It wasn't, you know, groundbreaking. There was already Ski Safari. It's similar in scope to Tiny Wings as you control a snowboarder as he goes downhill. What Alto's Adventure really nailed, though, was they somehow combined kind of this zen-like relaxing immersion with still a focused challenge. It's not like you're just not doing anything. So you still have that concept, but they kind of merged them together. And Alto's Odyssey continues that, but now you go from the snowy hilltops to sand dunes, and you do sandboarding all in the same regard. And then they've built little improvements upon the entire formula. So for instance, there's now three biomes. You start in the desert, you go to the canyons, and then you go to the temple. The canyons have this new wall ride feature, and the temple has this new water flow feature. So there's just new little things sprinkled upon that core concept of Alto's Adventure. Right, yeah. So when Alto's Adventure came out, the big thing that really hooked you in was that graphical fidelity of the game and how it just looks so beautiful compared to other games in this kind of genre. And you were kind of limited in your tricks where you really only had that backflip. You could chain things together, but it was kind of, I don't know, it felt kind of limited. And so when I first started playing Alto's Odyssey, I'm like, oh no, this is the same game. They just kind of changed the setting. It wasn't until you grind through a little bit and you earn enough coins that you unlock that, that I guess, sandboard. or And then now you unlock that area where you get to do the wall ride, which is a nice new mechanic. Finally, I felt like something was different. So I was a little nervous at first that this was just, let's change the scenery and relaunch the same game. But that wall riding really changes things up. And then... As you progress further in the game, you unlock new characters as well, which kind of change it up even more. Like the first one you unlock is this girl, Maya, who has a much faster rotation on her backflip, which is so much better. Really, Alto, I'll never use him again because Maya is what you really want the flip to be much faster, especially I'm watching the Olympics while playing this game. She's an Olympian. Alto, no, you're you're. You're not. You're not quite there yet. She can do it. She's fast. I'll choose Maya every time. Yeah, this should be Maya's Odyssey because it's definitely much better to play with. And it really, the wall jump and just the way they've set up the hills allow for more airtime where you can pull off trick chains of like 10 times because that wall jump, you get tons of air and then you might fall and bounce on the top of a hot air balloon, fly into then the ropes in between to do a grind or do a grind on vines and then just pull backflips in between and off of it even over gaps and you can just pull up these huge racked combos and that just keeps you intrigued because then there's that scrolling mission system and a lot of these endless runner style games have that mission system but Alto's Odyssey really kind of executes it as well as you could expect by making sure 
everything is doable in one run. It's not those marathon things like travel 10,000 meters or something. It's something like pull off a wall grind or a wall ride into a grind into a backflip or get two birds of paradise and try to do a double backflip once you have those two birds of paradise and just little things that you can aim for in a given run rather than getting lost in, oh, I guess got to play a whole bunch of times to get these missions done. Right. Yeah, I do like that they are they can be done in a single run. My only my complaint about the mission system is you may not necessarily see the thing you need to do because it's all procedurally generated. They don't seem to kind of force the thing you need to do into your run. So I had some pretty long runs that I that I went through and I must have had to go through at least 10 fairly extensive runs before I even saw the thing I need to do. And it was like, I, I don't remember what it was. It was something about wall riding across a chasm or, or some, or maybe I had to do it twice. Oh no, that's what it was. I had to break two pots twice. And I did not for the life of me see any pots except for one in like 10 straight runs. And I don't know if I, I don't know why I didn't see them because they were long enough runs. I should have run into one, but it was, that did kind of frustrate me a little bit where I wouldn't necessarily, it wasn't because I wasn't pulling off the thing I need to do. It just, I was never even given the opportunity to do the thing I need to do, which kind of hampered my ability to level up and keep progressing in the game. So the only time I saw that was when I then realized that certain things are tied to certain biomes. So the pots and stuff are mainly in the temple area. And then the like wall ride is mainly in the canyon or the air balloons are mainly in the desert. So if you get those things, you can unlock the ability to have a compass so you can switch between the three biomes. So if you get familiar of where all the different things are in the biomes, you can then jump to them to complete missions. And really that biome system is what makes the game difference because Alto's adventure kind of scratched the surface of giving you a progression idea in an endless structure. The original game has the day-night cycle, it has long distances to travel, but Alto's Odyssey seems to amplify every aspect. So you can start a run in the desert, and then you'll need to escape from lemurs every so often, and then clear gaps. It's kind of like those elders you had to escape in Alto's Adventure, but now when you clear those lemurs, you know that you're proceeding possibly to a next biome. So you could have a run that goes about 10,000 meters, and you'll go through all three biomes, and you might even ride through day and night, and then the day and night can be different because there'll be sandstorms and lightning storms that you'll have in the backdrop that can kind of change the lighting and the environment to the biome. So it feels like you went and traveled a whole long distance, even though it's the same riding down sound hills over and over again. Right. Yeah. The, the day and night shifting, it also changes the difficulty a lot because your biggest obstacle throughout the entire game are hitting these rocks that you may or may not notice, especially when it starts to get dark. Like you may not see this, this little rock just waiting for you to bump into and it takes you out. And so having it go from light to dark, yeah, you get that nice sense of movement and length of time where it didn't really necessarily take you that long, but it does change things up just from that difficulty perspective. I do miss the llamas, from Alto's <laughs> Adventure. I wish they would come back. I haven't, I'm hoping that maybe they'll make an appearance, but I haven't seen them yet. There's a, a whole bunch more unlockable characters I haven't done yet. I'm kind of hoping that maybe I'll get to be a llama, but I have no idea. Yeah, 
I, I definitely miss the llamas. <laughs> but <laughs> since I guess you were over in South America, it makes sense that they don't make it wherever the new location is. True. But really, you know, sequels have a tough time, whether it's movies or video games, because there's that dilemma of either doing too little and it's a quick cash grab or doing too much and losing what made the original good. And so I think Alto's Odyssey really kind of walks that fine line where it doesn't reinvent the wheel. It's essentially Alto's adventure that's been redone with more ornate backdrops and lighting effects and a quicker day-night cycle. And then every kind of addition seems to just build upon the structure. It doesn't change the way you play Alto's adventure, but it makes it just a little bit more compelling the way the missions are designed, the way you travel through those biomes to really just want you to get back into it. Because one of the limitations going in, I was like, well, if I liked Alto's adventure and I played it a bunch, I'm already kind of starting at a lower expectation point because how much more can you garner from this style? And so I was pleasantly surprised that the answer was quite a lot. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, I, I went in and... I immediately was skeptical just because, especially in those first couple of hours of play, it played so similarly. But if you can get through that and start to earn enough coins to unlock some of the other items in there, you'll see how much extra new stuff and nuanced additions they put into the game that make it a, a very worthy sequel. That you, Even if you are like played to death the original i think you're gonna find stuff about this that you're really gonna enjoy and make it feel like a fresh experience but still have that familiarity that is this is the game that i really enjoyed before but now there's these nice little tweaks and meatier things that i can dig into uh, while still playing that same thing that i loved before yep and then that Zen mode returns if you don't want to have to bother with the rocks. And just wanted to mention the lighting effects of this game where you can pass where pass below air balloons and they're, they will block out the sun as you pass them, but not completely. So it's just like if you were riding beneath air balloons. And so it's really neat. They do the same thing with the canyon walls. Sometimes your character goes behind a canyon wall and you can see kind of like a white little silhouette and just really neat little camera fun pieces even though it's just a 2d kind of flat game they still give you depth of scope with those little lighting changes yeah yeah no it's beautiful especially you even see like the little rainbow ring that you would see like if a camera was filming it no it, they did a fantastic job with all of that and so it's Alto's Odyssey, it's $4.99, it's Universal. And up next is Roll For It, which is the latest digital board game adaptation. You know Brett loves him. And this one <laughs> I actually played, so I can give the introduction to it. And it comes from the makers of Ciro. And in this case, it's a completely different game because it's a dice-based game. And it's really easy to grasp. You're given six dice, and then there's cards. Each card has a specific dice requirement. It might be three threes or it could be a straight like one two three four or you might have a super simple card that only needs two dice or a really complex card that needs all six dice and they vary in points from two five ten and fifteen and the goal is for the winner is the first person who reaches 40 points so you want to try to get those cards as best you can and the core game for the initial download features one to four players and you have four main sets of dice to choose from 
and there's an in-app purchase to unlock everything for $4, and then you get additional cards, you can play with up to eight players, and you have all kinds of different new dice, including fuzzy safari dice and space, like, spectacle dice. So there's little kind of incentives to unlock. But even just the core game taken by itself is really easy to grasp. And yet there's a surprising amount of strategy because you can place the dice without completing a card. Say you need a 1, 5, and 6, and you rolled the 1 and the 5. You can put those 1 and 5 out there and hope that no one else gets a 1, 5, 6 before your next turn rolls around and then you try to get that 6. And then you can also split your dice. So say someone already has that 1 and 5 on that card, and you're like, I'll put my 1 and 5 out there, but I'm going to hedge my bets in case they complete it before my next turn rolls around. I got two threes that I could put over on this card that needs three threes. So you can always kind of balance it, but it's worth noting that once your dice are out on cards, you can't roll them again. So when your next card turn rolls around, you have fewer dice to potentially make those different matches rather than just focusing on one card. Right, yeah, it's a whole push-your-luck kind of thing where you're committing dice to a card and the only way you can get those dice back is if you either someone else completes the card and then now you get your dice back and you can use them on your next turn or you have to take back all your committed dice. So you might have multiple cards that you put dice on, but in order to get them back, you have to take every single die that's out there and take them all back in your hand and re-roll. So... You might have already started a few cards, but say you started one of the, the cards that requires all six of your dice. Well, if you already have two committed out there and you now you committed three to another card and one to another card, you're never going to be able to finish an actual card. So you're kind of stuck. You, you are stupid and you need to pull everything back. So there is a lot of strategy there. There is a huge heavy luck component to the game. There's no, I mean, you're rolling dice. What do you expect? But there is that nice strategic element of how do I play? Where do I play the dice to give myself the best possible chance of winning? Now, I play the physical game. I own the physical game. I actually own two different versions of the physical game. The way the game was released is there's a red box of cards, which comes with a certain set of colored dice, and you get a certain grouping of cards. And that's the one you get when you buy the app. Then there's a separate... Oh, no, you get the purple deck. So then there's a separate purple deck of cards, which is different formations of the numbers and different colored dice. And so... Normally, with the physical version, you would combine both of those sets together, and that's how you get the eight players. You get all the dice that you have, and all you just mix the cards together, and you have all kinds of choices for cards. So they give you the purple set when you purchase the app, and you get the colored, colored dice, the solid colored dice that come with that. And then if you want to pay that extra cost, you would unlock the red deck, which come with the translucent one, translucent dice, and then you have like bundles that give you those other special dice. One of the cool special dice that are the ones I've kind of gravitated to are the wizard dice because they'll actually kind of glow a little bit when you all the ones that you can use on any of the cards that are out there, they'll kind of glow. So you get this instant little kind of hint of wait maybe i can play all these certain dice and then you start to look just at those and it saves a little time but i thought it was a neat little extra that they put in there for that wizard dice the only real drawback for me is that there's multiple difficulties and in a game like zero that makes sense where they'll strategize different ways and lining up the paths but in this game it seems it only lends themselves to getting luckier in their dice rolls i mean 
it's kind of a person versus computer grudge kind mm. of idea. I don't know if it's factually accurate that it seems like they're getting luckier than me, but I know that I am awesome at losing when somehow I'll take like five rolls to get these six things and then they take like two rolls and they get them all and I lose because they had 25 points, I had 30 points. Just fun stuff like that. So I guess that's part yeah. of the inherent problem of dice games, but still. Yeah, so one thing I did know uh, when I talked to Chris Leader at from Calliope Games, and he's also the guy who designed the original game, when I talked to him at PAX Unplugged and I got to see a, a preview of this, he went through those various um, the AIs that they have in the game. And so some of them will make dumb moves. So to kind of, I don't know if the luck is enhanced for them, but I know there's a troll, uh, a troll AI. And what he'll do is every card that you go for, he'll go for it too. Yeah, so if you I've go for a that. card, he's going to start putting his on. And there's actually like a, I think there's an achievement in the game where if you troll the troll, so if the troll goes first and starts going on cards and you go after every card that he goes after, then you, I think there's an achievement you can unlock. I don't know if that ended up in the final game or not, but I know that was one that they're thinking about putting in there. But yeah, I don't, I don't know how, with a game that's a lot of luck, I don't know how much strategy you could put into various ais to make them better other than to give them more luck i i did that wasn't th something i thought to ask them when we were talking about it but yeah yeah the one thing i didn't i don't really like about the various ais is it's a lot tougher i thought in this app than other apps to tell exactly which of the ais you're applying to the different characters it it it's not yeah. completely obvious, and I, I wish it was a little clearer in the game, but it, it does do a nice job if you're playing through just against AIs and going through the tutorial of unlocking the different levels of AI as you go. And then you kind of learn the game, and not that there's a lot to learn, but you kind of develop a little bit more of a strategy as you're playing each of these AIs separately and unlocking them one at a time. Yeah, and then also just on that idea, it would be nice if the eight-player mode wasn't locked behind the paywall just because you think of it as zero. But I guess I understand why they did it. It is worth noting just for the original purchase price, you can do pass and play as well as online multiplayer in addition to playing against AI. Right, and I think the online games are either two-player or up to four-player you can do. Mm-hmm. And so that's Roll For It. It's $1.99. It's universal. And then there's Dissembler, which is a kind of minimalistic puzzle game where you need to make matches. And there's only one right sequence for a solution. So you're given a grid of colors, and you simply swipe between two colors to flip their placement. And that will hopefully make a match. And you need to make it so you clear all the tiles off the board. You can't have one tile left over. So you need to make sure that you flip the tiles in just the right order and sequence to make sure all the colors are collected to be pulled off the screen. Right. And it'll only let you flip two tiles if it's going to make enough of a match to pull a piece out. Like, I think you need more than two. I think you might need three together a minimum of three for it to disappear and so 
some of the like it starts off easy and it's pretty obvious and you learn certain patterns of things to oh if i move this this will be the order i need to kind of take out all these different colored blocks in order to beat the puzzle then it starts getting crazy difficult as you start to progress through the game like there's it, not only is it just more and more bits of color added to the screen but then they have ones where there's layers of color so first you have to match off to take off the first layer and then all of a sudden this under layer will kind of pop up you can see what colors they're going to be but now they come up and fill the space and now you have a whole another layer of things and you never want to strand a piece over by itself because it'll never be able to match you can't like fold something over into empty space in order to get it to touch something to take the the other like abandoned one away so these it, it starts off really easy but it got difficult i thought fairly quickly especially if you try to do the daily puzzles and the daily puzzles you can skip around there's usually i think like six of them and you can do them in any order you want but the normal puzzles you're kind of stuck going in order so if you get stuck down by one you're not going to necessarily be able to uh, continue on and get them all done. Yeah, the game features over 120 different levels, and they do amp up pretty quickly. To your point, it starts out with just a single solid color, but as you progress, the blocks are going to have multiple colors, so you need to clear that outside layer to get to the inside layer and work your way to much more complex ideas through that progression of 120 levels. Though you can get stumped and stuck, but it has a really helpful undo system where every move is just a single undo away. So you can undo your entire progression and see where things went wrong and try to go back and build from a particular point. Yeah, that undo system is perfect because I, I hate having to start all the way over. At least you couldn't step your way back and kind of puzzle out what you did wrong. And maybe you will have to go all the way back, but it is nice to be able to just kind of step back a little bit at a time and then figure it out. Because you do gain an understanding of Captain and how the board reacts to every mood. Because as you go back, you see what did go into place so you can maybe hopefully figure out a proper path forward right right exactly and so that's dissembler it's 2.99 and it's universal and then there's selfie poker which unlike the name it doesn't regard you taking pictures of your face and playing <laughs> hands with that it actually is just playing poker by yourself and so it's a single player card game where you're given a grid of three five and five card rows and so you need to make sure that each row has a better hand than the row above it so those three cards if you make a pair you better make sure that the next row down of five cards has a better pair or a better hand but then also the row below that needs to be better than that second row so say you have a pair of fours at the top and then you make a pair of tens in the middle you better sure you have a pair of face cards in the bottom or you go to three kind flush straight full house etc and you only have you know a set deck of cards to play from and you only have i think 10 cards up at once to potentially put into the rows yeah and so what it'll do is it'll cycle you through the rows and you put one card on each row at a time so you it'll first start out by having to put one on the bottom row and it gives you one 
one card at least in the bottom row. I can't remember. I thought it gave you one in the second row and maybe none on the top row. And so it'll keep on cycling through the rows, and then you have to pick one from your base group of cards you have. So you can kind of plan ahead a little bit, but you don't always know what's going to come in. And then you need to have at least a pair on that bottom row to score it all, or or otherwise you're, I think you're out of the game. You you lose. So you you kind of plan it a little bit. There's some planning, but then again, if you don't get the card that you were planning on using, you may end up kind of ruining it for yourself. And now you you don't have a way to get a better a better score on that lowest the lowest row so there is kind of that whole solitaire mentality of it i i agree it's like the poorest name they could have ever given this thing i all i can guess is they wanted people to check it out when they're searching for the word selfie but i don't know it should have had a better name but it, it's kind of interesting i i don't know how long i'll play it but i thought it was a different take on solitaire and it's kind of unique yeah, the challenge in that it's not like, oh, I have these three rows, so I'm going to throw these five cards in the bottom and these five cards in the second row. You can only play one card at a time, so you have to plan it out. Say you could make a pair or a three of a kind. You can make a three of a kind in the middle row, but you know that your bottom row, there's no way I'm getting beyond two pairs unless I'm super lucky. So you play against getting that one card you need. So instead, oh, I'm just going to throw in a card that doesn't give me three and a kind. I'm just going to leave it as a pair, so that way my bottom hand will be better. But then every card that's left over that doesn't go into a poker hand, that starts the deck of the next round. So if you only made a pair in like row two and row three and nothing in row one, then you have like five or six cards starting out already randomly shuffled into those three rows to put you behind the eight ball just because you did so poorly in the previous round. Yeah, the one thing I found a little confusing with it was the scoring. I They do, if you go to the help, it does kind of tell you what the scoring is going to be, but I didn't think it was super intuitive as far as like me planning out that this is i know i'm going to get this score for this whole setup i mean maybe that's just something you'll learn as you play through it more and i don't know off the top of my head i know the basic of these certain one these certain poker hands are higher than these others and i guess if you really know that you could probably kind of guess the the scoring a little bit better but for me, I thought that was kind of a sticking point where I didn't always know what I was going to score. I just kind of focused on just doing better for each one of the rows. And and like you said, I, I would kind of tank that top row to make sure that I didn't lose and not get something really good in that bottom row. Yeah, because you can't play that you're going to get the card that you need. You have to play that you're not going to get that card that you need. So you're going to likely have cards left over. Because even if you try to push it, I got a flush in the bottom row and then a straight in the second row and I did a three of a kind in the top row. That's probably the most points you're going to come across because <laughs> you're not going to do like a royal flush or anything. But even then, that's super hard to pull off. You have to be super lucky. So it's best to kind of hedge your bets and be like, you know, I'm probably not going to get a straight in the middle row. So maybe I'll just put in two sixes. So that way it's at least better than my two threes in the top. 
Right. I think that's what I usually ended up doing. Unless I had an obvious flush that I could toss in there on the bottom row, I pretty much went for pairs. And then maybe if I got lucky, I would get one of the numbers again, and then I'd be able to, hopefully it was the one near the on the bottom row, that I could either then do uh, two pair or make that three of a kind. And then, so I didn't score very high. It was rare that I got the cards that, that made it obvious, like, this is what I want to go for outside of just doing the pair route. Yep. And so that's Selfie Poker. It is free. It's universal. And I think that's everything for episode 56. Yep. That's all I got. Brett, thanks for joining me. Oh, yeah. It's a pleasure as always. And to everyone listening, we hope you enjoyed, and we'll talk to you next time. Talk to you later.